Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana Ramirez. And I'm Carla Lamb. Today, we're hanging out with Rosa Alcala. Rosa Alcala is a poet and translator originally from Patterson, New Jersey, who has published three books of poetry. Most recently, My Other Tongue, the editor and translator of Spit Temple, the selected performances of Cecilia Vicuña. Alcala has been the recipient of an NEA Translation Fellowship and runner-up for a Penn Translation Award. She teaches in the Department of Creative Writing and Bilingual MFA program at the University of Texas, El Paso. Yay, today's show is going to be a little different than our usual format because we're actually going to be sharing with you the live performance from the City of Asylum International Literary Festival that we did. So um, I had the extreme honor of interviewing Rosa after her performance, and so we're going to play that as well. Carly, can you set, us, set this up a little bit? Tell us a little bit about you know, what the festival was about and how this came to be. Oh, yeah. City of Asylum's International um, Literary Festival is the first of its kind, the first in Pittsburgh. Um, City of Asylum just like jumped on this really cool opportunity to take advantage of the virtual platform and connect with people, translators and authors just from a bunch of different countries. And it was a 10 day festival with two to three events a day. And every event had to do with translation. So that's how we got connected with Asterix Journal and Rosa Alcala, because she's a translator. tonight's reader, um, Rosa Alcala, and I want to first off thank Rosa for being a part of the Asterix family. Rosa was actually in our kitchen translation, a kitchen table translation issue, which came out in 2017. It was edited by Madhu Kaza. Shout out to Madhu. Um, and Rosa is here to share with us her incredible work and then to participate in an interview with me and then to answer some questions from y'all. Welcome, Rosa. Thank you so much for being a part of this event. And we're so excited to hear you read. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read some translations of Cecilia Vicuña's work. Some of the poems are part of a book that she wrote in the late 60s and early 70s. This, and it was a manuscript that was lost. It's called Sabor a Mi, a manuscript that was uh, supposed to be published when she left Chile in 1972 to go to England. And it never was published. The coup intervened, and it's unclear what happened to the manuscript. But what's left of that manuscript has been reconstructed by Cecilia. Cecilia didn't return to Chile after the coup, uh, not right away. She went to Colombia after that and then New York. Uh, and there's something about these early poems. I started, I became her translator later on in the 90s. So these early poems have always been very interesting to me as kind of an insight into her early poetics. So I'm going to read some of those poems and then a later poem as well that is more engaged with this sort of long history that Cecilia has with what one would call eco-poetics. The first poem is called The Dream Company. So Cecilia was very young and you know she was a teenager in her early 20s when she wrote these poems. So um, I'm going to read the Spanish and the English. There may be some Spanish speakers out there, some bilingual speakers um, as well. So this is called La Compañía de los Sueños, Aviso Económico. La compañía tiene por objeto realizar los sueños nocturnos del cliente. Si usted tiene un sueño, escribe a la compañía que se encargará de reunir a todos los personajes del sueño en el ambiente natural del sueño. La compañía no garantiza la total realización del sueño. El azar no depende de ninguna compañía. La compañía no falseará los sentimientos de ningún personaje por medio de la instrucción. Si usted ha soñado que es besado por un antiguo amante en la cumbre de la montaña, la compañía devolverá a su amante a la cumbre de la montaña. Pero usted será besado 
and that's 1970. The dream company classified ad. The company's objective is to fulfill nocturnal dreams for its client. If you have a dream, write to the company who will see to it that all the characters in your dream be gathered in a natural dream environment. The company cannot guarantee total realization of the dream. Chance does not answer to a company. The company will not re-educate any character to falsify emotion. If in a dream you were kissed by an old lover on a mountaintop, the company will place your lover on that mountaintop once again. But you, will you be kissed? This is called Nuevos Diseños Eróticos para Muebles. Isn't that exciting? Like, what's going to come next? Nuevos Diseños Eróticos para Muebles. Soñando con un mundo vasto, hemos llegado a la certera conclusión de que, los, de que las posiciones del cuerpo en el mundo civilizado son demasiado limitadas, de modo que terminaremos con la posición sentada en una silla para proponer distintos muebles que ofrezcan multiplicidad de movimientos o situaciones corporales a la conductora de sus propias carnes. Esta idea será de fundamental interés para las personas obsesionadas o obligadas a permanecer durante, durante largo, tiempo, largo tiempo inmóviles como son estudiantes, oficinistas, operadores de fábricas, asistentes a reuniones. Se crearán modelos para personas que odien escribir sentadas, para que puedan hacerlo hincadas de boca en cuclillas o cabeza abajo. Estos muebles irán en beneficio de la salud y la belleza de todos los interesados gracias a la peculiar irrigación sanguínea y la repentina turgencia de muslos y naglas Nalgas, que sin duda tengo planeadas. That's 1971. New erotic designs for furniture. Dreaming of a vast world, we have come to the definite conclusion that physical positions in a civilized world are too constricting. Therefore, we would eliminate the position sitting in a chair and suggest instead a different kind of furniture that allows for a multiplicity of movements and physical situations in line with each body's specific wiring. This idea will be of special interest to those who obsessively or by obligation remain immobile for long hours, e.g. students, office workers, machine operators, meeting attendees, Zoom watchers, because <laughs> that's basically how we're doing everything these days. Models will be built for those who hate to write while sitting, allowing them to kneel, lie on their bellies, squat, or hang upside down. This furniture will promote the health and beauty of all its users, thanks to the peculiar increase in blood circulation and inevitable protuberance of thighs and asses, which are undoubtedly part of my plan. So those are some of the early poems. I'm going to read one of the later ones. This is, I'm not gonna read the Spanish, I'm gonna read the English. This is more uh, of a prose piece. And uh, this is one that was written recently, or at least when we put the book together a few years ago. Uh, to hear is to strike gold, a response to Pascualama. Glacier is the origin of the word cool and the first chill, the slow moving ice of an inner music that dies when no one wants to hear it. As it breaks, the glacier moans, releasing a cow's alvillier lament the nearly extinct condor is the glacier, water messenger, intermediary between two worlds. Guadipaxa, the boy condor, guardian of the glacier, was buried alive at the source of the Mapocho River, El Plomo's glacier peak, 
to ensure the valley we, know, we now called Santiago would never lack water. Buried and forgotten for 500 years, he was then discovered and torn from his sleep by miners in 1954. They located him only to dislocate him, turning him into a trophy, an archeological object. They called it mountain worship. And with that phrase situated him in the past, they called him El Plomo Mummy, and that name separated him from life. But the boy continues to sleep, and when someone listens to the water, his sleep is returned to the present. The boy returns now to national consciousness, the glaciers at risk of being sold, contaminated, lost. He reappears at this moment when Chile must choose between hearing and not hearing the music of an ancient connection between the earth and the glacier, the specific tone of a place. Place is sound and a form of hearing it, a weave of interrelations, interactions between people and land, the space of naming. To change the naming, to change the meaning of a name is to change the world. In Alto del Carmen, situated in the Huasco province, land of Gabriela Mistral's ancestors, Chile must decide on a meaning. Alto del Carmen could be the place Chile chooses to honor its poetry above all else, or it could be the end of poetry. Today, shepherds from Valle del Huasco, descendants of the Diaguita, are guardians of an ancient vision of the glacier as life-giving, as life-giving, sacred. We can choose to listen to the music of the place in all its potential or put an end to life by surrendering, surrendering the glacier and the mines to neo-colonial powers. Do we hear it, but do we hear its voice, our own interior voice? Or do we hear the voice of a system that says, the dollar is what counts, what do you know? We are now the owners of these mines and cyanide is the, is the new guardian of the waters. Water is gold, manquimilla, gold condor, the blood of the glacier listening to us. The slow shifting ice is testimony to an ancient relationship with earth and water and ritual conservation of its fluidity is our true cultural patrimony the future inheritance of a music that sustains the earth and human life simultaneously. In Australia, indigenous peoples have recovered their dignity and their land rights through poetry. The ritual conservation of their history in the landscape is their song line. In Chile, the condor and the water of legends, the memory of the people, is the line of song that enters the earth to fecundate it the intangible kipu of our community. So it was written in 2006. And then I'm gonna switch over to reading some of my own poems that deal with um, ideas of translation. And uh, there are um, quite a few of them. So I just picked a few um, ideas of translation, but also my relationship to both Spanish and English having um, grown up bilingual, the daughter of Spanish immigrants who never le learned English. Um, so there's a lot of poems thinking about that. And so the first one I'm going to read is called Paramore. Paramore. English is dirty, polyamorous. English wants me. English rides with girls and with boys. English keeps an open tab and never sleeps alone. English is a smooth talker who makes me say, please. It's a bit of role playing and I like a good tease. We have a safe word I keep forgetting. English likes pet names. English has a little secret, a past, another family. English is going to leave them for me. I've made English a set of keys. English brings me flowers stolen from a grave. English texts me, slips in as emojis, attaches selfies, not safe for work. English has rules but accepts dates last minute. English makes booty calls. English makes me want it. 
when I was younger, my parents said, keep that English out of our house. If you leave with that miserable, don't come back. I said, God willing, in the language of the Inquisition. I climbed out my window, but always got caught. English had a hoopty that was the joint. Now my mother goes gaga over our cute babies. Together, English and I wrote my father's obituary. How many times have I said it's over and English just laughs and says, come on, senorita, let's go for Chinese. We always end up in a fancy hotel where we give fake names. And as I lay my head to hear my lover breathe, I dream of Sam Patch plunging into water, a poem English gave me that had been given to another. Um, and I'm going to share, this is... Um, my friend, uh, the Colombian poet, Andrea Cotebotero, friend and colleague, um, and she translated with uh, Chilean poet, um, Paula Cucurrela, my book, My Other Tongue, this book here. And so I want you to hear her reading the translation of Paramore. Paramore. El inglés es sucio, poliamoroso. El inglés quiere conmigo. El inglés anda con chicas y chicos. El inglés tiene cuenta abierta en el bar y nunca duerme solo. El inglés es un encantador de serpientes y me hace rogar. Hay algo de juego de roles y a mí me encanta juguetear. Tenemos una palabra clave de la que me olvido siempre. El inglés ama los apodos. El inglés Tiene un pequeño secreto, un pasado, otra familia. El inglés va a dejarlos por mí. Ya le hice un juego de llaves. El inglés me trae flores robadas de una tumba. El inglés me manda textos, secuela en forma de emoji. Me manda selfies no aptos para cardíacos. El inglés tiene sus reglas, pero acepta citas de último minuto. El inglés hace llamadas nocturnas. El inglés me hace rogarle. Cuando era más joven, mis padres me decían, mantén al inglés fuera de nuestra casa. Si te vas con ese miserable, no vuelvas más. Yo decía, Dios mediante, en la lengua de la Inquisición, escapaba por la ventana, pero me atrapaban siempre. El inglés tiene un cacharrito que es lo máximo. Ahora mi madre se derrite con nuestros adorables bebés. Juntos, el inglés y yo escribimos el obituario de mi padre. ¿Cuántas veces le habré dicho al inglés que ya basta? Pero él solo se ríe y me dice, ven acá, guapa, vamos por comida china. Siempre terminamos en un hotel lujoso donde damos nombres falsos y mientras reclino mi cabeza para escuchar la respiración de mi amante, sueño con Stan Patch hundiéndose en el agua. Un poema que el inglés me dio que ya le había dado a otra. Because I listened to her voice forever. So I'm going to finish with this last poem. And this is a more recent poem um, from a manuscript that I am finishing up now. And I'm just going to say I'm finishing up to put it out to the universe if it's actually going to be finished. Um, this is called You Amateur Interpreter. Um, and I think this captures maybe the experience of many of us who are um, children of immigrants whose parents didn't speak English and we had to sort of act as, as interpreters. This is not my first poem about this subject. Um, you, amateur interpreter. You would have told yourself as your mother sat in the dentist chair had you known who Wittgenstein was then, quote, I have to imagine pain which I do not feel and the model of the pain which I do feel, end quote. You would have considered whether deep nerve pain was more akin to an arm scraping against pavement or to the head struck by a slipper flung from across the room just after breakfast. But that wouldn't have solved the problem of translation. First, build the model, then describe its components in another language so that the model falls apart and becomes another. Meaning, could you have described your mother's pain to the doctor in English, even if you felt it in your own jaw? You'd watched your mama's teeth being pulled or a mold made out of her mouth. 
dentures have to fit perfectly or they hurt. You did your best telling her to bite, to bite down hard into the wax. You can't remember your parents with a full set of teeth. When you had yours pulled, the wisdom and the one dead at the root, you had nothing to interpret but the ether. So you lay back in leather and let the dentist, like a lover, blow smoke into your mouth until the, jer- until the chair began to swirl, a tipsy teacup at the church bazaar and whip your hair around. Later, you got a well-paid gig at Avon's International Awards Dinner and were placed with the top Latin American sellers. And oh God, you were hungry and didn't have half the words for the cosmetic industry. But the agency never bothered to ask, so you faked it and brought home leftovers. Those ladies deserved better than your parent-teacher conference training. Anyone in the kitchen could have done the job. In high school, when you tried to test out of Spanish and were asked to spell out numbers, you thought, que facil, but ended up in the same group as the metal chicks from the suburbs. When you were a baby, Papa's first English swung into the back of the restaurant with each stack of dishes and with a box of diapers under each arm, he'd, he'd come home singing, happy birthday para mi, happy birthday para mi. Thank you. Thank you. That was, uh, I have... I have so many questions and so much to say. Um, that was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Did I go over time? Oh, time is but a construct. Don't worry. So I wanted to ask you, I think what might be like a fairly obvious question, but something I've always wanted to know, which is how did you become Cecilia Vicuña's translator? How did that, was that, did somebody place you or did you stumble upon or how did it go? Just tell me about that. So um, I I was uh, doing my MFA at Brown, and I knew someone who was in in ethnomusicology, he was also a student, who was the... who was a friend of Allen Ginsberg, accompanied him on guitar. And Allen Ginsberg and Cecilia Vicuña were doing uh, something at the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York. This friend of mine brought back her book. He told her about me. She put her address in the book. Um, and I wrote her a letter because this was pre-email. Um, or, I mean, it was like right at the cusp of email, but nobody really used it that much yet. And so I wrote her a letter saying I loved her book. Um, And then I invited her out to Brown. And then I went to visit her in New York when I would go home to New Jersey. Um, And so we we started to just form a relationship. And then it just happened to be that I right after I finished my MFA, I moved to Scotland, um, uh, to Edinburgh. There was a relationship involved. This is, you know, one of these things where I thought I was going to move there permanently, but I didn't. But I was she was also going to be there to do um, an art installation. Oh, that's kismet. Yes. Um, And then, so my boyfriend at the time was gonna do, he had a small press, he was gonna do a book of her work um, to accompany the opening of the show. And so I was there, I was bilingual, I was a poet. And so I translated her and that's sort of how it started. You know, I think that sometimes um, these things just happen this way, right? We meet people, you're, you know, and something, like you said, it's kismet. It's just something just happens and you're there. And then, you know, you couldn't have predicted that it was going to be a sort of a lifetime project and relationship that you developed. So, yeah, so that was it. And I really didn't, you know, I had done some translation, um, you know, I mean, a lifetime of interpretation for parents and sort of always serving that role, but I'd done some literary translation as an academic exercise. And that's just about it. Mm -hmm. No, that resonated so much with me when you were talking about sort of like PTA translation. Yeah. So I I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because there's an intimacy to translation, right? You worked with Cecilia Vicuña and you, you kind of have to get her voice in your head. Do you ever find that um, creeping into your own writing? Like, have you ever written a poem and gone, Oh, am I being Cecilia? 
Well, it's really hard to be Cecilia. You know, I mean, it's like, yes, it's no, I mean, her particular way of approaching things and being in the world is so particular to her. It's really, really hard to imitate. So even when I did Spit Temple, which is the book on her performances, this is focused just on her improvisational oral performances. There are transcriptions of performances here, along with like a critical study and some other things. I've never, I've tried a couple of times to read those performances, like off the page, like from the transcriptions, and it falls very flat. So it's kind of almost difficult to embody anything she does, I found. Mm. Um, I mean, I can read the Spanish, um, and those early poems are a little bit different, but I find that there's something about the way she reads and also the way she approaches writing that is so different from how I am in the world. So it's it's interesting that I could be her translator, but that's very different from being her. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's almost like that distance is necessary, I think, sometimes for a translator or for any of us who are doing like that. You, there has to be this kind of distance, even when you're writing between the thing you're writing about and the writing. So um, I don't find that she slips into the poems or into my own poems. I, like I said, I write a lot about translation. The, the, right. the topic of translation comes in and I'm still trying to find a way because the, the last poem that I wrote is, a, is a, a, a sort of poetic memoir of sorts. And I keep thinking I want to write about our relationship, our 25 year relationship um, in the form of a poem. I have yet to do that. So maybe that'll happen. What does happen though is occasionally I hear her performance voice in my head, hmm. like, or I'll just hear like a little cadence in my head. So that, that kind of sticks with me. Like that little cadence is, is there in my ear. It's so, it's so present in my head. Um, but it doesn't often slip into, into the poems. Yeah. <laughs> So shifting a little bit to language, I mean, you know, you have this kind of, uh, come on, senorita, let's go for Chinese, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, and you read it in this very, like, awesome little accent and all that. Um, and then when she read it, it was, you know, vamos guapa a comer un poquito de comida china. I know, right? it's totally and different, yeah. So different, right? Yeah. And so it, it got me thinking about a couple of things, which is one, different Spanishes. You know, my dad's Mexican and my mother is Colombian. And oh. we cannot agree on the word for peas, you know, ejotes versus, right. you know, like, or, it just gets, it gets wild in there. Right, <laughs> aguacate, pasta. I mean, it just like goes every, every food yeah. has like a Ford, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, the word for corn, man, like it depends how you're making it. Mexicans yeah. are like, 80 words for corn (laughs) so so you know so I I was wondering thinking about language choices like how does it affect you you know the the poet to hear somebody else have such a wildly different interpretation of your line and also how does that kind of as a translator so I want you to answer as poet and then as translator um how you kind of respond to thinking about the way that meaning can change in translation Yeah, you know, I was just thinking uh, a few, maybe a couple of months ago, um, I watched something that Andrea Cote put together with Carolyn Forche and some other poets. And and these poets were, had translated Carolyn Forche. And they asked her this question, like, how does it feel to be translated? And she was like, oh, it feels like such a miracle. And it's so beautiful. And I was like, oh, I am the person who like approaches, like, receives everything with anxiety. So a lot of it just produced anxiety in me. But I think that also has to do with having a, a, a very um, sort of uh, problematic relationship to both English and Spanish. Like I have mm-hmm. a vexed relationship to both, which is I don't, you know, I, I always feel like I don't quite belong in either. So when I hear something translated, I'm like, well, is that what I was trying to, and I also know too much. Like I know Spanish really well and I know English very well. So I think that if you, if you're being translated, um, like I was translated into Portuguese and someone's translating me now into Montenegrin. Um, I know, and I'm like, that might, that actually might be relaxing to me because I can't read the translation. Ah. Um, there would be something about just be like, it is what it is, because I can't read it. You just so, kind yeah, of gotta they, let it go and trust. 
there was a little bit, there was a little bit of that anxiety of like, well, this is what I would do. But again, I don't have the distance with my own poem. So at some point I just had to say, they are translators. And Andrea Cote has, you know, translated, um, uh, Jericho Brown has translated um, Tracy K. Smith, you know, like she is no slouch in the translation department. So I had to relax and just mm. allow her to make choices and to know what she thought would work in Spanish because she writes primarily in Spanish and I don't. So that was it. And then something like that line of like, come on, senorita. I'm like, you can't really, what is the equivalent there? The equivalent is like some guy, you know, trying to like a Texas draw a guy trying to pronounce Spanish, but he can't, you know, it's like there's yeah. there's a lot going on there about that relationship between between a man and a woman that represent different ideas. Right. And and is that going to be conveyed in in Spanish? And if it isn't, then maybe it's just better to kind of do something else. Right. Instead mm -hmm. of trying to replicate it and it not be having any sort of, you know, context in Spanish. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of fascinating to see the Spanish word senorita translated, right? Because right. you would think they'd be like, oh, that one's done. <laughs> <laughs> right. But right. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I know it's a lot more complex. No, no, it's, a, it's the same thing. <laughs> right. What did she do? Did she write? She said guapa, right? She guapa, said guapa yeah. instead of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it made me, I was like, oh, is that a Colombian guapa or is that a Spanish? Spanish weapon, which, you exactly. know, also there are, there are Spanishes and there are Spanishes kind of the way English is right. Um, yeah. We don't think of English this way because, you know, we're Americans and we enjoy our monoliths. Um, but there is, you know, British English and Australian English and New Zealand English, and there's all the slang and all of the variety and not to mention dialects within the U S and yeah. Spanish is just as if not more <laughs> yeah. varied. And I think a lot of people don't realize that um, when thinking about translation. And so, you know, Cecilia B being a, um, Cecilia Vicuña being a, a Chilean poet, right? Did you yeah. ever have any stumbling as somebody who came from a more Spain Spanish background? Well, you know, yes. I mean, there are a lot of Chilenismos, and there's a lot of things that she kind of invents, and they're just Vicuñaismos, you know, that I'm translating. Um, but yes, my my parents are from Spain. They came to the U.S. when in 1968. So it was a year before I was born. But I grew up with so many different Spanishes. And in mm -hmm. fact, my references are so complex. Um, and so when I was thinking about the WAPA, I was like, well, what the, how does WAPA function in there? Because WAPA does sound very Spain Spanish, or as my friend says, Spanish. <laughs> it sounds very Spain Spanish. But I wonder if that's the, the WAPA is a different different from the Spanish that's used in the rest of the poem, just like Senorita is. Like, mm -hmm. does that indicate like somebody using a sort of uh, you know diction that's not his at that moment? The colonizer, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, or that they they read it somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, they read this. Like, that's what how that's how you approach a woman, or that's what you call a woman, or you know, address a woman. So that that was kind of you know. Uh, sort of interesting to think about that I guess I hadn't thought about till, till you asked. But the, the other thing is, you know, when we were doing the test run in the beginning and I played this, I, I didn't share it with the audience here, but it's a, a poem that uses text to voice technology and you can choose the voice that is going to voice your poem. Um, and I had a choice of all these different Spanishes, like Spanish accents. It could be in the voice of a woman, a man. I could do like all these different things. And I decided to use, uh, I think her name was Laura. You know, she had like a, she had a Castilian accent. But you know, when I hear her, she doesn't sound the way I do in Spanish because I grew up in New Jersey. Because when I go back to Spain, everybody's like, uh, where are you from? Are you Mexican? Right. <laughs> Or are, are you Argentinian? Like, it depends. seriously, like I go back there every day. I would get asked um, where, you know, nobody thought I was Spanish. I understand. Um, I, I laugh because I know that pain so well. Yeah. So um, I'm just like, oh, and then having to explain like the whole thing. And then sometimes I'm like, yeah, so I can be that. You know, I'm just like, I just don't want to have the conversation. Oh, no. I no. have a personal vendetta because of soccer against Argentina. So. Okay. So I won't say Argentina for now. Okay. So, <laughs> but no, I mean, sometimes it was like, 
you don't want to have to explain all of this stuff. But I realized that my that my accent is confusing and displaces me and people when they listen. So so even that Spanish person voicing my voice sounds like this very prop. My, my parents from the South, se comen las palabras. Yeah. They're like, you know, very different from even that like, you know, electronic voice. So the original question was about approaching Cecilia. I think that one of the things one of the things I think attracted me to working with her and also working with Lourdes Vasquez, who's an Argentinian poet who lives in the same building as Cecilia, who I met through Cecilia and also a Puerto Rican poet, they all lived in New York. And there was something about working with women who were also put in the position where they're not just, they're speaking among people who speak different Spanishes and different Englishes. Mm -hmm. There's something about working with that, 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 you know, I didn't think it through early on. It wasn't like, this is my plan for being a translator. I'm going to do this. But I think there was something there about our position, like we're, who we were within us, within this majority English speaking place, you know, and what role we played. Um, and so that was one. And then two, I think I'm very adaptable because I grew up in New Jersey among um, Colombianos, Argentinos, uh, a few, I mean, I think, a few I Chileans. Think all immigrants you know? are to some degree. Like, I feel like yeah. every immigrant kid I know is like, I can code switch left and right. Speaking I, of totally. which, Speaking of which, we we could talk forever. Um, oh, are there people who have questions? But, well, it is it is time in the schedule for time. the questions. Um, That's so, so fast. I know. Well, it's because it's because we're having a great conversation. Yay! So, okay, so here are some questions um, that are coming through in the chat that have been curated for us by the amazing um, Carla Lamb. Okay, have you ever wanted to translate a single poem more than once? Ooh, like, did you change your mind? Yes. Oh, sorry. I'll keep reading the, po the question. More than one version of a single poem in order to allow for multiplicity of meaning that a single choice in a single translation won't allow. That's a great question. It's a great question. Um, yes, all the time. I mean, you know, my fantasy at some point, uh, and maybe it's still my fantasy, is to have um, a book or a situation. I think the internet is probably that thing, but where you could um, enter different versions at different points, right? So you have you have a you know the the translation that never ends, and that you could you know. Um, mix and match different things because I think sometimes I I feel that I have to make a final choice and I'm a bad decision maker so I feel like there has to be the single version so often I uh, I think oh what would happen if I could keep this um, or these two you know these two versions of this line um, and then the three versions of this line but you know ultimately there's there has to be a final version so yes right. but you know in in the new and selected um i returned to translations i did in the 90s when mm. i was still sort of you know a baby translator and <laughs> sort of thinking myself wow a little baby translator um <laughs> we when i was a baby translator and i and i returned to them really wanting to clean them up and perfect them and i found that my knowledge of translation had increased my ability to use English had increased, my vocabulary had increased, but my, um, but there was something about my foolishness in my 20s that allowed me to just be wild in some of these translations. And so I tried to not um, tamper with it too much. I tried to sort of allow some of that messiness to remain and then make you know, make revisions in places where it made sense. So I wanted to keep the wildness, but also, you know, where can I it. fix it and still do that? So yes, but I did have that opportunity to do that. And I, and even when I was reading translations for, in preparation for today, I was like, I would have taken out that. I probably would have rewritten that, <laughs> but you know. 
Yeah, that's I know. Fair. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful. It makes me think of, um, you know, how in music composers get to do like variations, you know, and they can be like variations on Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star. And then you can hear, you know, loops and loops yeah. as they're working kind of through the melody. And it would be so sure. delightful to be privy to kind of that work um, that a translator does. Um, For sure. I, I wanted to ask, in looking at the issue of Kitchen Table Translation and the, and the um, Vicuña poems that are in here, you know, there was a, a word that was obra and that you translated it as text. And I was really thinking about that. And it's, it's a one word choice, right? But I was like, oh, I wonder what kind of sparked the difference between, you know, the literal translation, which is a work, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then you you went with text. And I, I just thought that was so fascinating just on the word level. Um, and so, you know, rather than addressing like that specific choice, I'm just mm-hmm. curious, like when you're faced with a word that has multiple meanings or that it can go different ways, do you just kind of go with your gut or do you just, you know, kind of do you consult with the writer or, you know, what avenue do you pursue? Yeah, I mean, that's always that's always a tough choice. I can't I can't remember the the poem you're referring to. But um, I think that some sometimes I consult with Cecilia. I often ask her many, many questions. Um, La gitana dormida. La gitana dormida. Oh, yeah. But she's she's writing. She's writing that, isn't she? Yeah. Una obra, uh, una obra secreta. Yeah. Right. So the yeah. gypsy has been writing for many years, a secret text. No one yeah. will ever read. I mean, I just thought it was such a, a wonderful choice, right? It was a clarifying choice in some ways. Um, because yeah. the word obra could go in so many different ways, right? Sure. And it could be, you're right. I mean, you could say la obra de un autor, right? You could say a, a writer's work. Um, all right. So if we want to be fancy, um, but that's right. But I think, you know, I, that's probably a good example is, um, a word can have multiple meanings that, that those multiple meanings may not translate into the target language. So if you're going to pick one, which is the one that's going to support the, you know, overall intention of the poem. So what's the overall thing that's happening here where one has to, one thing has to be, sometimes you just have to make a choice. Right. Um, you know, there, there's always the possibility of putting footnotes if it's, if it's you know, worthwhile kind of uh, having the reader enter that nuance or that multiplicity. Ooh. I don't think this one was, uh, this, it would, I would have felt, justified putting a footnote well that's risky right because it breaks the flow too right it does break the flow but i think there are there are good good reasons to to do that right there are good reasons to also maintain the original word again this isn't i don't think a case for that but i think there's a reason to put the uh, the leave the original word and um and have a footnote to explain sort of how this word functions but that to translate it it's like the example this is maybe an overused example but the word duende doesn't really have a translation in english so it's always used in duende and it's always kind of misunderstood honestly i think most of the time it's kind of misused but nonetheless it's kind of a word that is you know seeped or steeped, not seeped, but steeped in a cultural context and a, and and you, a history. You mean it in the Lorca way, not in the uh, troll. Not in the, in the, right, 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 <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's true too. You may, you know, in, and in that case, that, that's such a great example. In, in that case, if it is the troll under the bridge, right, or if it's just a troll, um, then you want to translate troll. There would be no reason to, I think if you keep duende in English, the duende is going to be understood as Lorca's duende because duende has become so co-opted by the English-speaking literary establishment, right? It's like kind of used now, right? So, um, but if you put duende as troll, it's going to be misunderstood as that cultural concept that right. that Lorca talked about. So, yeah. Yeah, I apologize for the under the bridge part. I I, I actually translate um, my son's books at night and reading him The Three Billy Goats Gruff. And I struggle so much because I'm like, okay, Billy Goat, uh, just gonna go with goat. <laughs> you know, and gruff, I, gruñon is what I went with, kind of grumpy. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, but I was just thinking to myself, I was like, well, it's a duende who lives under the bridge. <laughs> so, so are you, tra- so it's just the English version? Yeah. I have the have? English versions of the books. And um, because I want him to speak Spanish, I try to only speak Spanish to him. And There's so, a translation of it. Oh, I'm sure. I just don't own it. <laughs> No, because I have it. My daughter is my daughter's going to be 12 in August, so we don't read it anymore. And we may even have given it away. But I remember reading that in Spanish and English and having the same thing be like, Billy Goat. I've never, never had to say Billy Goat in Spanish. Oh, that's Billy Goat. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not like Chivo Guillermo. <laughs> Chivo Guillermo is so good. That just that's means so like good. William Goat, for those of you who don't know. Chivo Guillermo. This is how us bilinguals get our kicks. It's 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 really true. Um, <laughs> William um, Goat likes this. No, but it's it's real. I mean, I got a kick out of so many things listening to translation. Um, I mean, just no apto para cardiacos, hilarious, right? But how do you yeah. translate NSFW? You know, um, and so just always dealing with culture and translation is so fun. Um, or hoop, or Actually, that was an easy yes. one. Really? Hoopty. Yeah, and actually, I just remember because we were talking about how Wapa sounds more like. Spain Spanish um but when she uh cacharrito is very Colombian she says mi cacharrito so but cacharrito sounds like cacharrito sounds so hoopty-ish in Spanish like it sounds like it really like I get to say mi cacharrito you know for for hoopty um but hoopty was one like how is she going to trans or you know um he had a hoopty that was the joint, like, and even joint isn't really used anymore. It's so like 1980s. Um, or even earlier, I would say. Is it earlier? Right, yeah. right? Like we're going yeah. to the joint. Because I mean, there's the joint like prison, but yeah. then there's like the joint like, woo um so yeah no definitely and you can I mean as I was listening to her I you know my mother being Colombian I'm very used and Costeña um you know there's definitely a certain flavor of language um to Colombian coastal Spanish that is very distinctive and so it's one of the things that made me think of like oh like how does that roll with you you know and how does it feel as a Spanish speaker to hear something that is not quite in your Spanish yeah, exactly. I'm looking at here, Carla's like, how would you translate fulano, like fulano de tal? Um, oh, man. I mean, fulano de tal, it, like fulano de tal is like John Doe, right? Like a so-and-so? So-and-so, but you wouldn't say John Doe as much like that so-and-so, fulano de tal. That guy. <laughs> yeah, he's that guy. That guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's also like you go to Colombia and people will say, I mean, there's a way that English Colorito. has bled in. Yeah. English has bled into Colombia. So you'll see people being like, hey, ese man, no me gusta. You know, you're like, ese man. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And so I always, I'm always like, or like, estoy, uh, me gusta full. Me encanta full. Yeah, that's a very coastal Colombian expression. Like full, like lleno or full? Yeah, like F U L L. Like me gusta full. Like I like it so much. Uh (laughs) It's a misuse of full. And yeah, it flows. It flows really well. And so it's easy to catch on. And then, you know, I find myself using it. Yeah. Um, And so, but language does that, right? yeah. You know, there's that whole like prescriptivist versus descriptivist, you know, kind of tension in translation too, right? Like people yeah. who are like, you need to translate it exactly for what it is. And then there's the kind of like, no, nah, you just need to get into like the feels of it. <laughs> well, and you know, the thing, the, the thing is, I think, especially if you, if you grew up sort of always moving between languages is that you also have a relationship of, um, inventing or sort of creating things to fill gaps. Right. I come into translation thinking that there's also the possibility there that it isn't, we're not just sort of trying to create a perfect replica, but if we allow ourselves like when we're writing poetry to allow for inventiveness, and there's always possibility there. And I like the the potential of that, of like, creating words for concepts or things that don't exist or creating mm. something that's, that is um, a mixture of the two, you know? Well, and I would add that one of the things that I love about particularly Latin American Spanish, um, because it's not as like 
stuffy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no Royal Academy of Latin American Spanish. Um, there is a Royal Academy of Spain Spanish. Right. Um, right. Which is that, you know, but there's um, the grammar lends itself to playfulness, you know, and yeah. so you can suffix your way like in and out of things. You're like one of my favorite Mexican expressions is like, it's absolutely silly. And yet in context, it makes perfect sense. You know, tienes de dos sopas, o lo haces, o lo haces, right? You've got mm-hmm. two soups, or you do it or you do it. It doesn't translate the same way. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. carry the same punch, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I always, I don't know, I really enjoy like listening to like Spanish radio and DJs who say silly things and invent new words. And, you know, growing up in South Texas, especially. And so, Carla, te busco, te busco y no te busco. <laughs> And just how difficult. Yeah. I mean, but I, I agree with Carlos. Carlos making a little note here. You know, there's attitude and slang that really can't be translated the same way. Um, and so yeah. you're, I imagine you, you got to figure out how to tap into the culture that you're translating into as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's always uh, wordplay, um, colloquialisms, um, are very hard to translate. And then something that is very invisible for the most part, I mean, you know, poets have tried to make it visible in their writing are accents mm. um, in particular ways or how things are pronounced. And it's uh, it's often difficult and sometimes problematic to try to do it this way that you kind of try to pin down the way a community speaks, particularly people in the community speak. Um, but all of those things that have to do with um, the way that individuals and particular groups um, sort of put their mark on a language are the most difficult to translate because you don't have the same conditions in the target language. You may right. not have the same conditions. I mean, it's a whole different language, but also the cultural context may be completely different. So right. how do you get all of that? Yeah. One last lightning, lightning question, because I know okay. we're out of time. Okay. Yeah. Which is, do you ever choose to leave something untranslated? I'm sure like, I'm going to say yes. I can't think of one example off the top of my head. There may have been things, I, mean, I know that there are words that I that I leave in the Spanish mm. or in the Quechua or in whatever, like, you know, if there's a particular word that, um, and not just like proper names, but just particular words or concepts that we, you know, refer to, right. to the way that they can't be, I, I will leave it. Okay. Um, but I try to find... Um, some solution, even if it's not the perfect one for other things that fall outside of that context. Right. It's a delicate balance between, you know, doing the labor of translation, which is making sure it's accessible to people in different places um, while kind of honoring the author's work. Oh, what a delightful dance. Well, Rosa Cala, thank you so much for talking to thank me today you. and for sharing your work and your translations. And um, shout out to Cecilia Vicuña, who was a huge part of this reading. Um, and yeah. Wow, that was such a great event. It made it was one of those events that made me want to buy her book. It made me oh. kind of like, I need this book immediately. I want to dive into her work. Um, and also, yeah, her um, Vicuña translations. And I looked up Cecilia Vicuña's, you know, body of work. And she's just like a visual artist. She's, a, you know, she has like site-specific artwork and audio and poetry. And it's just like this hybrid form that kind of just is beyond my scope of like, what is poetry that mm. I just, it really made me question um, <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm still like a, a page poet but um oh that's wonderful so she showed you other possibilities yeah exactly and like permission too and then just also permission in the in the smaller sense to like talk about like kind of just daily life in in poetry it it can mundane you know sipping on tea looking out the window thinking about some lover that left you know you know like those things like that I want to write about, but I don't write about. So yeah. And then just 
so much permission. Like Rosa Alcada really just is a pioneer of um, letting laying down the groundwork for for other baby poets like me to just explore. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, by unearthing Cecilia Vicuña's work, Alcala opens, you know, an entire pathway, right? And that's something that we don't talk about enough. Like what translators do is they also, I used to have, I used to have this idea that translators, like that some editor was like, oh, we need to translate, blah, let's have, let's go find the right translator for it. And that happens part of the time. But what I learned from Rosa is actually that, you know, it's a lot more organic and it's about a writer falling in love with their translator and their translator falling in love with them and their work and seeing if it works together. And it's a lot more relationship oriented than I think I realized it was. <laughs> and so I, I thought that was so cool, the intimacy. And so in a way, it's like her intimacy with Vicuña's work is allowing you to access something that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have. Oh, Absolutely. Oh. access it was really cool too because um the closing event of the literary festival and lit fest as we like to call it um featured a poet and translator Forrest Gander and a Mexican poet uh Coral Bracho uh-huh. and I had never heard of her before but it turns out she's like huge in Mexico and um it, they, during their conversation, so Forrest Gander is Goral's translator, but Goral has done some translations herself from mm-hmm. um, into Spanish. And then they joked about like, oh, what if Goral all of a sudden becomes Forrest Gander's translator and then has this like reciprocal translation, you know, re- That's so cool. Which would be really cool. I don't think it's been done before, honestly, when and talking about like um, translator author relationships. Um, and this, and related though, I remember being young and translating Shakira lyrics mm. to English mm. and then showing those to like my crush at the time and being like, look what I wrote, but it really wasn't. It was just me. <laughs> counting, so, counting on the ignorance of others. <laughs> yeah, actually that too, definitely. Um, I love it. Yeah. So you have a little experience translating, huh? A little bit. And have you had any work translated? Yes, actually, I had an essay I wrote um, for LitHub be translated uh, into a, an anthology in Argentina. Oh, amazing. Of all places. And then I had some poems that were translated into Flemish, weirdly enough. And so that's my two experiences of being translated. And it's really funny because I am a fluent Spanish speaker, but I chose to have my work translated by a translator because I... Argentine Spanish is so different from Mexican Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I know they use the vosotros tense and a lot of things that I just colloquially do not use. My Spanish is very colloquial. And so I had to kind of be like, okay, like I'm gonna, you know, seed this. And yeah. then when I got it back, I read it and then I sent it to my dad to read. And we talked about like the words we disagreed with, but how, you know, fucking Argentines. So we just kind of let it be. <laughs> but it was really interesting to kind of think about, you know, the choice to have my work translated instead of doing it myself. Um, yeah, but, that's such an interesting choice. Well, letting the expert be the expert to mm-hmm. some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and also being lazy. <laughs> I didn't want to sit down and do it. Um, so if somebody else was willing to do it. Yeah. And did you, did you get a relationship with that translator? That sort of, but it was, it was mitigated through the editor. Whereas my Flemish poems, I actually sat down and met with the woman, um, Katia. Oh my God. It's been a few years now, four years. So, um, but she was lovely, lovely, lovely. We actually hung out in Belgium when I went to Belgium later. And um, she was, I mean, it was all part of the same deal, right? It was because of Passaporta that the poems got translated. And so she was the person they connected me with, but she was like, she called me up and was like, I don't understand these words. Mm-hmm. And you translate them into like colloquial expressions. And so I was like, okay. And then we both spoke French. And so her English was bad. My French was bad, but we somehow were able to kind of meet in the middle with all the languages. 
And I'd be like, well, it's kind of like in French, they say blah, blah. And she was like, oh, okay. I could see how to now think of the Flemish version of that. Um, but it was, it was really, yeah, it was really an interesting experience to realize also how much I was relying on um, aphorisms and colloquialisms and to some degree cliches um, for people to understand certain shorthand. Interesting. Yeah. And so there's certain things that you're like, oh, shoot, how would I translate this? Yeah. You know, and so, um, yeah. Thank you for that question. I hadn't thought of that, actually, throughout this whole thing. I hadn't sat down and been like, but you have been translated. So (laughs) And it's really making me think of like, you know, that phrase lost in translation. Mm. And then, but like the filter that is like, say I was translating you and like the filter of me and every, and like my, you know, interpretation and then you as the author and your intention with the work. And then, yeah, like is culture. And like you said, like vernacular part of it. Right. Um, Right. Right. And I couldn't sit down and translate my own poem necessarily either without taking it somewhere else. And like talking about like the poem wants to do this other thing. So I've, I I also didn't realize how being translated was kind of rare for a lot of poem or poets, um, a lot of my peers and a lot of people. Because when I I actually oh, yeah. got one, um, I was lucky enough um, for one of my poems to be translated in Mexico City Ooh. from um, this um, magazine called uh, Revista La Peste, and it's what a um, great name. Yeah, I really love it. I really love it. It's so punk rock. (laughs) Yeah. And and it is, I feel like it is like a kind of a DIY anarchist. um, So more of a zine. Outlet. But it's actually really, really well produced and it's online and it's, um, and it's a physical, you know, um, zine for sure. And it kind of had to stop because of like COVID and things like that. But um, how cool is that experience? Um, did okay. you work? Did you work with your translator? No, they basically they sent me like, okay, this is what I have. Do you like it? And I was like, yeah, I like it. And it was really interesting because like I never really developed a relationship with the translator. Um, what ended up happening is yeah, like the editor basically said like, this is what we have. Let us know. And I was just so taken aback by, yeah, someone else's interpretation of what I was trying to say. Yeah. Even beyond that, um, that translator called it a remix. They didn't call it a translation. They called it a remix, even though it was Mm. from English to Spanish. But the Spanish version had a couple extra lines that I guess is what made it a remix. Um, That's it. That actually might be more accurate than translation in some ways. Um, Oh, shoot. We are running out of time, Carla. Uh, So let's very quickly do um, what we're reading and some stuff for the road. So I'll kick us off. Um, I am achieving a lifelong dream tomorrow and I am auditioning for Jeopardy. Yay. (laughs) So in order to do that, I am reading a book called Game Show Trivia, which is just lists of facts. Um, And I am pretending that I have the ability to memorize these facts. So (laughs) that is what's happening with me. All right. That's so, so cool. I love Jeopardy. Um, (laughs) All right, your turn. Yes, I'm rereading um, Richard Blanco's City of a Hundred Fires. Um, yeah, I just kind of, I'm unpacking from my move, and right. this book just kind of jumped out at me, even though I had like definitely read it before. Former U.S. poet laureate. Yes, and um, I think he was teaching at my MFA program, and we had a chance to meet. So when, I think Richard Blanco has such an interesting um, cadence when he performs that I can just, like, hear his voice mm-hmm. as I'm reading these poems. And, um, yeah, they're, they, these poems are just incredible, like, place poems and, like, missing home and identity. And I love the Spanish kind of, like, um, sprinkled in there. And, yeah, Richard Blanco, shout out. And that's what I'm reading currently and 
Um, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. I will scope that out too. I don't think I've read that one. And I, I actually had the chance to meet him at a reading for um, Pulse back when AWP was in Florida. So when back in Tampa, I got to meet him and it was just amazing. Um, okay. So for the road, anything fun? Oh my gosh. Um, City of Asylum is getting back into in-person events. <gasps> what? Yes. So we're excited and nervous and just a lot of um, just coordination and logistics. So hit me up with it. When is it? What is it? I don't know. It starts in June. We have a tent. So yeah, I think coming up the first week of June, there's a tent on Samsonia Way. Um and there's a bunch of events at cityofasylum.org if anyone out there is interested. Pittsburgh, the yeah. summer of seeing people again if you're vaccinated and safe. What, 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 what? We here at Charla Cultural believe in science and promote science. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> We, we believe in science. Um, well, let me see. Uh, for me, Eurovision just ended. And so there is a huge void in my life that I'm trying to fill with trivia. Um, but the winners were this incredibly, incredibly attractive, like that Hansel. He's so hot right now. So hot. Um, those Italians that won Eurovision, Maniskin, they have a Danish name, but their song is called Zitia Boni, which means essentially like shut up and behave and be good. <laughs> love that um and it is like true like rock and roll italian rock and roll and they're like 22 year olds and they all look like they should be in like vogue and they are phenomenal and they just won eurovision a little scandalously um and it is totally fun and worth checking out and if we had any budget i would buy the rights to that song and play a little for you right now but we don't so um we'll put it in the links for the show um yay oh carla this was so much fun and this was so lovely to see you and uh let's do it again in two weeks Sound good? Yes, Adriana. Vamos pronto. Besitos, besitos, okay? Um. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez. Committed to social justice and translation placing women of color at the center of the conversation. Charla Cultural is hosted by Carla Lamb and Adriana E. Ramirez. Voice of Goddess is Alexis Jabour. Editorial support by Clarissa A. León. Production design and brand management by Little Owl Creative. Our theme song is Colombia Folk by Luis Alfonso. And thank you as always to our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. <laughs>